Hi guys, I'm Wesley Rashid. Thanks for tuning in to the Tech Startup Collective. We explore some of the insider tips and some of the finest talking points from today's brightest tech entrepreneurs. Today, we have the co-founder of Avoca, David Howarth, a rising star in legal tech. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, David. No problem at all, Wesley. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. Let's talk about you first. Avoca was founded in 2015, but before then, maybe you can tell the listeners about what you did before you started the company and what led you to form Avoca. So I was a lawyer by background, probably not the most conventional risk-taking profession there is to start a business. So I worked for one of the, one of the big magic circle kind of corporate firms, met my co-founder Elliot on, a, on an internship, what seems like a lifetime ago now. I was kind of going down the graduate path, becoming a lawyer, working every hour under the sun. and just kind of realized that, well, a couple of things. First of all, there's probably more to life than staring out of your window at three in the morning and, and changing people's initials in board minutes and things, but also that there is enormous opportunity in the sector. People are spending hundreds of millions on legal fees around the world every year, billions even. And the way in which legal work is done, the way in which transactions are handled, is just so ripe for change. And nothing has happened in the industry for so long. They just seem like a combination of a great opportunity and just something that I really wanted to kind of try my hand at at kind of that stage in my career. So Elliot and I decided to, you know, hand in our notices and, and step out into the, the kind of the new world. Great stuff. What was the feeling at that stage? Was it elation? Blissful naivety, probably, about what we're about to do. It was a little bit of nerves. I think the hardest thing actually was just kind of telling everyone that, you know, you're walking away from, you know, an established career, that everyone's been family proud. Oh, well done. You know, you're a lawyer, all this. And then suddenly stepping out tomorrow and, and you're completely on your own. And then it, it became extremely liberating, certainly for the early days when you really started to realize that you could take the, the company whatever angle you really wanted to go down. Yeah, I still kind of remember, I was actually in Hong Kong at the time that I handed my notice on, on to Conman. I remember just kind of calling home saying, oh, yeah, I had a good day, but actually I've also decided to kind of quit my job and I'll be flying back to just kind of start this. So yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind start, but definitely the early days are really kind of feel quite free about what you're about to do. What was their reaction? They were supportive. I think ultimately, I think after, after they got their head around what we were trying to do and the opportunity that was out there, I mean, it's quite difficult to explain to you kind of you know, to, to your parents and family, the kind of business that we're doing, you know, contract automation negotiation. I mean, might as well be speaking completely different language to sure, them. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, but I think they were very supportive. I think it's great having done a few, you know, a number of years in that kind of profession because you always feel like if the worst happens, it has given you a great grounding. So yeah, ultimately got very supportive. And, and as time went on, you know, are certainly very pleased about how things have been going. And yeah, I couldn't really have asked for more from the kind of family and friend support as well, which I think is super important when you first start something like this. Just for the benefit of the listeners, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the landscape of legal tech when you decided to form Avoca. Yeah, sure. So legal tech, I mean, still isn't really a thing now as such as getting there, but it really was a quite a new concept. I remember Elliot and I, kind of almost the first week after we left, we went to a legal tech meetup in the city and there must have been around 14 people there. Everyone knew everyone. It was a really, really small community and people say it's five or 10 years behind where fintech is. And I think, I think that's absolutely true in that there's not a lot talked about. People don't really know the term. But over the last few years, I mean, the growth has been absolutely enormous. To put it into perspective, Legal Geek, which is, you know, one of the great foundations that kind of exists within legal tech, a great community. I think it went from the first conference having a, you know, a couple of hundred of people, maybe uh, two years later, you're looking at a couple of thousand and it's really started to get on the agenda. It's still quite nascent though. And I think, you know, 
funding, etc. People don't really, there's not a lot of big legal tech deals out there. There's not a lot of big legal tech companies that perhaps are household names, but it's certainly starting to kind of bubble away. Um, but I'd say we, we're getting better, but we're still way behind fintech, insurtech, medtech, all those recognized industries that have been around for a number of years. Okay. So there's a bit of energy about the whole. Yeah. Lots of energy. And, um, you know, law firms who are big drivers of change in the industry. And I think you always need the existing players in any industry to at least help promote or at least look to start changing things. You look at fintech, although we've got a lot of challenger banks, et cetera, a lot of actual innovation is being looked at by banks themselves. Um, and I think what's happening now is that the law firms really are starting to come around and they are the ones that are helping to instigate change. And, and without law firms and legal teams, et cetera, and people just involved in the profession willing to embrace change, it does make it really difficult for a company to come out and start change the way people are working. That moment, I guess, when you decide to form a Vocker, that was quite a poignant moment for you. Mm-hmm. Is there any advice that you can give to aspiring entrepreneurs? taking away some of the learning from your experiences when starting the company? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things, and I think everyone would feel this, that when you went back, you would kind of do differently. Nothing huge in a way, but it's the, it's the small things. It's, you know, what do I do on day one? How am I going to go about and do this? The advice I can give is read as much as you possibly can, go and listen to talks, but not necessarily about different industries. Go to actual specific talks. So go to a talk by someone giving you a you know, 101 on marketing, go to a, an hour's talk about building a sales team from nothing. You know, there's so much content out there that is really quite specific in a way that you can just pick up those really early learning blocks. Sure. You know, I remember when we were trying to sell it for the first time, we spent half a morning researching companies, I think in the construction industry, and we got a hundred email addresses, half of them were info accounts. And we just sat down sent a mail merge out with our marketing email and, our, and we just kind of sat there thinking, oh, okay, that, I wonder how long before the kind of first one was signed up. And just looking back at how naive we were sending a, a sales email to, I think, Info HSBC, for example, it's just ridiculous. I mean, everyone knows now, no one even reads Info accounts. It's just small things like that, that actually you spend a bit of time reading. Um, you really can start eradicating the mistakes from day one, but everyone learns along the way. So definitely things like that, read more content and just read specific content from day one makes everything much easier. Great stuff. Now I'm going to ask you the same question again Yeah. in a slightly different way. Okay. What advice would you give to those thinking about moving into tech that come from the professional services industry? I think the professional service industry, it gives you an incredible background to starting a company. There's one thing, you know, it does make you quite risk averse. And I think one thing it does condition you to do with any industry or any financial service industry is it does make you always ask permission. You know, you get everything checked by four layers above you. You write an email and it will have been marked up six times before it gets sent. You'll say the same thing, but there'll be semicolons in a different place. There'll be different paragraph spacing. And you get really conditioned almost to thinking that in a way, there's always going to be something that's changed. And I think that element of it, you have to try and break quite quickly. But what it does give you is a really good foundation of just how to conduct yourself in meetings. You know, you walk into a meeting for the first time, you're selling to enterprise customers. It's nice to know you've been in there before. Um, you've been there, you've done that. Okay. You probably were just taking notes and pouring coffee for people, but at least you've seen what goes on. You've seen the environment. You know, advice I would give is that actually you actually are in a really good position to start this. I think people think that, oh, it's a huge risk. You're throwing away a, you know, a great career you've already got. It must be so much easier to do this if you come straight from university, you haven't built up a reputation, et cetera, et cetera. I actually think it's the complete opposite. I mean, you've spent a number of years building a really good reputation in industry that you always have with you. And you'll be shocked at how many of those skills 
when you go into the day-to-day of your, your company, you, you'll bring with you, whether it's accounting sure. from a banking background. The big advice I would give is just, just make the jump because there's always an excuse why you won't do it. You'll think of a hundred reasons why not to, and they'll never go away. So the second you do it, then you can really start actually to build it because trying to do it at the same time, trying to bide your time really just doesn't really work. Really nice advice. Okay, let's talk about Avoca. Okay. Can you describe what the company does and why solving this problem is so important to you? So Avoca is an end-to-end contract tool. So what we're trying to do is bring efficiency to the contracting process at the moment. So this is combining contract automation with some live negotiation. So a bit like Google Docs, but for contracts, mm-hmm. e-signature and some analytics. So ultimately trying to help you get that contract created, negotiated, signed, and et cetera, from start to finish much quicker. For, for a long time now, there's just been no one addressing the end-to-end problem, the kind of how do we start a contract and finish a contract? People try to generate first drafts by answering questionnaires. So I can answer a questionnaire, get a first draft of my contract. But really, that's where innovation in this area has stopped. So we're trying to help, whether it's small businesses, large enterprise customers, law firms, just deal with the administrative side of contracting today in a far more efficient way. I think the reason we're trying to solve it is because that's what we did day to day. You know, I think I mentioned before, you know, I vividly remember staying up in the middle of the night in Hong Kong, changing 150 initials on board resolutions for a particular director because he wanted his fourth initial adding to the, to the signature block. I just, thought, I, just I was thinking this, hey, there's more to life than this, but how on earth when I can order something, you know, be food delivered to my apartment with my fingertip, am I still going into PDF editor and adding the third initial in for 150 pages. And and there was just nothing out there. And that's why we're trying to solve that problem because it manifests itself in every company in the world, every law firm, every small business has to deal with contracts and it's just been completely unaddressed. So essentially your customer can be from small businesses to professional law firms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we kind of traditionally target enterprise customers, large corporates, law firms, but also quickly growing startups as well, where often the legal team is the last thing to get resourced. And you have one poor legal person, if at all, who's having to deal with all these contracts that everyone's bombarding them with. Can you look at this? Can you check this? And by actually putting a bit of a process in place from the start, you can really start to mitigate huge amounts of time that they spend in the contracting process. Maybe you can describe some extreme highs and some extreme lows when you started a blocker. I think one of the real challenges early on was expectation management within ourselves, especially when you're dealing with enterprise customers. You know, as a startup, you can turn something around tomorrow. You get a contract in, you can have marked it up or you could have agreed something and you get it sent out in an hour's time. And you're there doing that and you're thinking, well, why on earth is, why is this corporate taking three weeks to to respond to my email. Do they not want to do the deal? Is it dead? Have they gone with someone else? Is the person still alive? I mean, these thoughts honestly just go through your mind. And and there was a couple of times when we tried to get some big contracts signed that we didn't hear from anyone for a while. And honestly, you, you start to go a bit crazy. You think of every excuse possible why they not got back to you. And it takes a while just to realize it's because they're busy. You know, they're running sure. enormous companies, enormous departments. And actually what you're doing with them is great. And it's going to make a real difference but actually their day job is still going on at the moment. And I think there were a couple of real low moments when we really thought some big deals were just kind of stalling. And it was simply because people are on holiday, people are away, and it's getting your mindset over the fact that, you know, there might be a reason they've gone cold, but actually things just take time, big organisations. So there's some particular kind of low points. I guess obviously the highs on the back of that is, you know, when they do drop in, you know, when you've been working eight months with a company to try and get something signed, it just happens. I mean, there's nothing quite like it, I think, you know, as I'm sure you all know, and many 
people out there, all that hard work for someone to recognize they want to buy your product, they want to use it. It is, you know, it's such a great feeling. But then as soon as that happens, the next thing is, I've got to support this now. What do we do next? Let's actually put it in place. So the one thing I would say is that as an entrepreneur versus a professional service person is the highs and lows are just, are just nonstop. How you look back on the day or the month can just be dictated by the last email you get. Like sure. You could have had the best morning in the world. And then if something goes wrong in the afternoon, you come back and go, God, that was a tough day. So it's just really just kind of coping with the highs and lows of what, what day-to-day life is. Actually, chutting on that point, you know, how important is it to have a tech background to kind of succeed in this industry? I mean, neither myself or Elliot, my co-founder, have got tech backgrounds. Definitely isn't essential, I don't think. You know, I mean, hopefully, as we're proving and many people are, that it's not essential to run a tech business with, with a tech background. But I think what you absolutely have to get early on is, is someone on, a te- on, the, on your tech team you, you can absolutely trust like anyone else. And our CTO, Tom, from day one has just been fantastic and, you know, absolute faith that what they're doing is, is, is kind of spot on and, and have faith that what is being built is, is kind of in our image almost. Because I think if you don't get that right early on, it can be very difficult. As a non-tech founder, it's next to impossible to judge someone's technical background. I remember meeting with a, with a load of, of kind of developers before we found our CTO. And they'd all come in and say, we've built this, we've built this. They'd show you shiny graphics on the screen and you think, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we, we could really use that. But actually what you realize quite quickly is that anyone can make nice looking graphics. I can make a WordPress site now that looks quite nice. But actually you've got to get someone who knows what they're doing behind the scenes. So spend the time getting the right person early on, because if you don't, you'll regret it and you'll change them every few months. So um, not essential, but it is essential that you really get a developer and a team of developers that you can absolutely trust. Just actually on that point of building a team yeah. and finding the right talent for your company, have you found that difficult as you start to scale up the business? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really difficult, you know, especially early on when you don't necessarily have a name or, or people haven't heard about you. You're in an industry that perhaps isn't the sexiest thing in the world. You know, not many people are growing up saying, I want to work in legal tech right now, <laughs> especially contract automation. So, you know, I think someone gave us great advice early on, which is, is kind of higher, slow, fire fast in a way. And unfortunately, it's not something we've had to do, but take the time to make sure you've got the right person. There's so many people now that do want to work in kind of, you know, quote unquote startups or young, exciting businesses and kind of make sure that you're, you get people that aren't just looking for a lifestyle change, that they don't just kind of want to put on a pair of trainers and drink beer and pizza on a Thursday. They actually want to work for something for the right reasons. The tech side, I think, is massively difficult because, as I said, it's really difficult to know who's good and who's not. But there's more out there now. There's more job boards for startups. There's you know, Angel Co. You've got working startups. There's, there's places now where people are getting a bit of a name to look for things. But still, you speak to everyone. Finding the right talent is, is kind of definitely one of the hardest things you can do. Let's talk about fundraising now. So you guys are on our accelerator right now, aren't you? We're part of Alman Overy, one of the big magic circles, Fuse program. It's not an accelerator in the traditional sense that we're getting funding from them or they're taking any equity in the company. They're running it more of an innovation lab just to kind of help promote innovation within the industry and particularly within, within A&O. But yeah, you know, accelerators, obviously more traditional ones are a route that we considered early on and, you know, maybe decided not necessarily to go down. Okay. Well, was, what was that? So I think early on, we did our first round with a group of angels, you know, took advantage of the SEIS uh, funding and, and just felt that actually at the time that we were doing something in quite a unique industry, we we're attacking enterprise sales, we we're tackling large corporations in quite hard to change industries. 
And we felt a lot of the accelerators, perhaps back then, going back a few years now, were perhaps a little bit more focused on the B2C things, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I want to go and take this to mass market. How do I scale really quickly? Which is great. And, and those things are changing now. But I think at the time we felt that actually we could kind of learn a lot of that from speaking to the right people. And actually for us at the time, it's probably strategically better to have investors from certain industries that we thought could really give us a genuine insight into people that might be end users of our platform. But having said that, I mean, who's, who's to know that's the right way to go? You see incredible success from people that have gone with accelerators to start with, gets you really good marketing early on, gets your name about yourself early on, which actually takes a little bit longer if you, if you do go down the angel route. You know, you, you're not good at self-promoting. You don't have a great social media. That's something that getting your name out there takes a little bit longer, I think, if you go down the more traditional, not necessarily traditional, but the kind of, you know, angel route. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess uh, they would facilitate connections, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, you're part of the marketing material that goes out. Hey, look at Startup X, just joined our cohort. Um, I think there's a lot of good things about it and it works really well for a lot of companies and it, and it probably could have worked quite well for us, but it was something that we didn't do at the very beginning. And therefore the longer we went on, we felt probably wasn't quite, quite right for us at the stage we were in. Okay. Let's talk about that first seed round back in 2016. Yeah. Believe. That was. So that was almost two years ago. Yeah. Is the first one always the hardest? Does it yeah, get easier? easier? <laughs> um, I, just, so, I mean, I, I think our first one in a way was was kind of, I don't know whether it was different or not. It was actually a, a friend of or connection of Elliot that we got introduced to the kind of two lead investors. And then actually then they managed to bring in a number of people they'd invested with before who were thought were right for it. So able to kind of build around a handful of key individuals. So for us, you know, we had to kind of prove a lot about the concept, prove what, what we're trying to do. I think, you know, people have said before that trying to raise angel money in the UK is as good as anywhere in the world because of all the great tax breaks that people have got and, and the kind of incentives around it. I mean, it certainly wasn't it wasn't easy. I'm not sure it gets easier though as such. We've actually done most of our rounds, well, all our rounds with near enough the same investors because again, we we know the team. I like think they've got a good amount of trust in what, we, in what we're doing. We've spoken to lots of VCs though, lots of kind of growth funds, et cetera. We, we very much did look and had some offers from from that side of the table. It's, it's a hard work though. It takes a lot of time, you know, to do these meetings. You have three or four meetings with every single fund. You're going over the same things in amongst trying to run the business. It's, it's a really time consuming process. So I just think, you know, the advice I would give is, you know, really take the time to look at what you want to achieve. Raising the biggest amount isn't always best. People want sure. to try and go out and raise a few million, get the press release. And then. You don't want to be stuck in a situation where you end up in a down round. Yeah, right? absolutely so. right. And not only that, you suddenly think, do I really need to, you know, people think, oh, if I have 10 salespeople, I'll do 10 times my, my sales. Doesn't, doesn't quite work like that. You've got to really delve down and think, do I really need to raise what I'm raising? What do I actually want to do with it? As opposed to just trying to say, yeah, let's raise as much as I can now, massively increase your monthly expenditure. If you haven't got the sales coming in, then as you say, you're in a down round where you're constantly having to run for that next round of funding. So I think, you know, just really sit down and take the time to look at what you're actually trying to achieve with the money and what you actually want to hit. So in terms of your experience, then how did you divvy up being able to manage the company whilst fundraising at the same time? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially what we did, we taking the last round, we really went out to kind of look at different places in the market. We kind of divvy up, you know, we, we take a handful of, of kind of VCs each. We go to kind of, you know, different meetings each. And then because often you don't always have to both be there at the start and, and just try and make sure you set yourself an amount of time that you are going to kind of spend on it. You've got to say to yourself, I'll spend this amount of time on fundraising now. I'll get the deck out. I'll talk to these people. 
but you can't neglect the rest of it. So I think you've got to be quite disciplined. Otherwise, it can just consume your life. You can do 200 versions of your pitch deck, changing a bullet point, changing a blue shading on the fourth slide. But you just got to get it out there and, and get on with it and, and, and really just start hitting those meetings and, and be selective about who you want to speak to. There's no point you kind of emailing every single VC in London, the US and Europe because they won't all be the perfect fit for you. So if you do that research at the beginning, you can really save everyone's time by going down three meetings before realizing that you're actually with a VC who loves B2C apps and you're an enterprise software business and, and you've just wasted email time, you've wasted everyone's time. So just do your research at the beginning. So I think your last fundraise was back in 2017. So yep. after three rounds of funding, what are the key things that you can take away from the whole process? Mm. Was there anything you would do differently now? I'm not sure. I think perhaps early on, you you perhaps, you underestimate maybe the money that you need to do what you think you're going to do. I think that's hopefully not just us. I think that's everyone. I think you always probably assume that sales will come in quicker than they will. Not not massively out, but just really start to interrogate your figures. Look at it and think genuinely like six months time, will I really have that revenue? And we got, you know, got some great advice from that. Our shareholders were great at kind of looking at our financials and kind of making sure they were kind of realistic. I'm not sure we've done anything differently up until now in terms of the way we structured the round. I'm pleased that we didn't go down certain other routes though. So we did look at doing a much larger round than our last round and actually turned away, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands around investment that we, you know, we got pretty serious about considering taking or not. And I'm actually very pleased we didn't because that was one of the situations whereby we looked at our accounts and we thought, We've got to go out and hire 20 people tomorrow and we just don't need them right now. The, the nature of the sales cycles, nature of the business. So I'm pleased we didn't go down that route. Now we probably might need to in the future. But I think, yeah, I would I would just interrogate your sales a bit more. We probably didn't qualify out enough VCs at the very beginning when we spoke to them. We probably spoke to ones that in hindsight wouldn't have been a good fit for us and wouldn't understand the nature of enterprise sales. So really do your homework is the advice I would give, whether you want to go down the angel route going down the VC route, just do your homework. What type of business are you and what are you looking to achieve will just save you an enormous amount of time throughout the process. And we could have definitely been a bit better at that. Presumably part of that funding raising process is to do due diligence on the funders themselves. Early on, we weren't great at that. I mean, I say we've been slightly different because we've been fortunate to kind of go with our angels, but certainly when we were speaking to funds, just as much as they're looking if you're a fit for them, you should be looking if, if they're a fit for you because, you know, it's concept of smart money and, and dumb money in a way. And not that any VC money is necessarily dumb money, but you want to make sure that whoever you go with can add more money than just the funds. If you want to get just a lump of money, you know, go get it, you know, go get a loan or something. You want to get something and bring people on board that can really help you. There are funds out there that really look at every different type of business. And there's no point having a phone call with someone where we're trying to explain why it's taking us 12 to 18 months to close an investment bank. And they're normally operating in a world where sales happen tomorrow. A customer likes it, they sign up on the app and the credit cards are in. And they're trying to understand, why does it take you 18 months to close investment bank A? Whereas if you talk to a fund who's used to working with enterprise customers who has looked at software being sold into investment banks, they go, oh yeah, sure. So you're kind of six months into your sales cycle. It's just from day one, you kind of, the expectations are way more aligned. So absolutely do your homework, speak to companies that have been funded by them as well. If you're getting quite serious, ask, say, look, can I speak to some of your portfolio companies? If they say no, there's probably a reason for that. So reach out to them, say, look, you guys got funded by VCX. What's your experience been like? Because the money is one thing, but everything else it brings alongside it is equally as important, if not more important than the money itself. 
Okay, let's talk about the tech. Talk to us about the Avoca platform and what functionality it has without giving anything commercially sensitive away. <laughs> yeah, of course. So I apologize in advance for any, for any tech listeners who will be ripping apart <laughs> my uh, explanation here. But yeah, I guess one, one of the hardest things we've built is essentially we built our own editor. So essentially something like Google Docs. Now, Google Docs is great, and, but also Google have spent hundreds of millions, if not billions on Google Docs and trying to recreate something that works in a way in which people expect. You know, people don't like bugs when they're typing. They don't like paragraphs not working. They don't like bullet points not working. So a lot of our time in tech has actually gone into the editor. So essentially, the, the kind of core piece of tech is the ability for us to trade negotiated drafts, so um, or collaborative drafts, should I say. So imagine you've got a Google Doc-style environment, but actually you can then, in structured way, trade drafts of that. So you can collaborate on your side, then you can trade a draft to the counterparty, but no one else can see what they're typing until they trade it back. That's kind of the core piece of tech, combined with ability to answer a questionnaire and get that first draft generated. The hardest thing, I think, on the tech side has definitely been to, you know, the online editor. It's, it's quite new technology generally. You know, Google Docs hasn't been around for that long. Google were massively groundbreaking when they did that. And editors are everywhere now, you don't even realize. So when you're typing in a message on LinkedIn, that's a mini editor. When you're typing a Facebook, that's a mini editor. But that's an editor that allows you to type in a handful of words, maybe make something bold and hit send. We're now looking at editors that are allowing you to completely replicate Microsoft Word functionality that has taken Microsoft tens of years. And again, untold amounts of money to perfect. And now we're doing that online with allowing people to collaborate. And, and that's the really difficult but exciting piece of tech that probably Avoca is, is currently kind of differentiating itself with. Yeah, that makes sense. And just putting to context, you know, you're not talking about one document, you're talking about executing thousands. Mm, yeah. You know, so you must have faced a whole number of technical challenges. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, so it's not just that you might want to do this to, to send over and trade one NDA. I mean, you absolutely can do. But we're looking at being used on transactions that are moving hundreds of millions of pounds around. You might have 300 documents and we're looking at technology now and we have it where you can upload an Excel spreadsheet of data points ultimately and the system will generate 200 documents for you in, in perfect form. To give you an example, that would take lawyers genuinely weeks to kind of do. And the hourly rates of £800 an hour plus, you know, really expensive work. So lawyers can now focus on the kind of, you know, what they're paid for. So I mean, the, the more kind of challenging technical questions. But because of that, though, the tech is difficult. And the, probably the hardest thing to get our heads around is the fact that legal profession are perfectionists. You can get this platform that allows them to generate a document, negotiate, collaborate, Google Doc style, e-sign it and analyze it in phenomenal detail never had before. But they'll look at it and go, oh, the bullet point on the fourth paragraph slightly misaligned. Can we fix that? <laughs> and you just want to throw your head against the wall. Um, because compared to the old way, it's a completely new, new way of working. And they can, but it's, it's because the profession is, is just a perfectionist profession, which, which is great. But so actually, weirdly enough, the technical challenges, most of them 
have been around making sure that things like formatting are absolutely perfect every time. If you want to download a Word document, it has to look perfect, house style, because documents are in a weird way, like the branding of, of most of these firms, law firms, legal departments, their branding is the way their Word document looks in a way, their, their kind of professionalism. So the hardest bits of the tech, you have no idea how difficult it is to build things like tables, which are perfectly aligned, or full custom numbering. We've had to build a full custom numbering tool that not even Google Docs have got, in which you can set alignment paragraphs, you can set seven different levels of numbering with different millimeters, different prefix, etc. And that's the stuff that actually gets technically really challenging as opposed to what you think would be the difficult stuff, which is actually trading draft, generating documents. And that's the thing that's probably most surprising about kind of embarking on this journey. So let's talk about, you know, what's in store for the future. I mean, at the moment, we're kind of making great strides, hopefully, with trying to change mindsets in the legal profession about the new ways of working. So as I say, being part of this Alman Overy Fuse Accelerator has been great. And we're slowly now, we're working with a number of big law firms, a number of big banks, corporate kind of household names. And so the future, I think, for us is, is try, you know, we're, we're trying to be the platform that everyone wants to use to negotiate documents on. Quite an ambitious aim, but, you know, we're trying to move people away from Microsoft Word and, and using this kind of platform. And, you know, there is no reason why this can't be the one that everyone wants to trade on, you know, Salesforce for contracts, something like that. You know, everyone goes in there and manages their day-to-day business on Salesforce or their HubSpot. There's nothing out there at the moment for lawyers and someone has to be that platform. And we're hoping that we're the one for the contracts. Final few questions for you, David. What's been your most satisfying moment in business? Well, I sincerely hope that more, there is the most satisfying ones are yet to come. I think the little things, you know, you've got to really appreciate the small things and that kind of what keeps you sane. A couple of nice ones. Um, we got invited to a, a kind of partner conference recently with AO, in which partners from all over the world fly in. And it wasn't just about tech, but we won the providers that were asked to kind of come and share what we do. And we did a terrifying live demonstration for anyone that's in tech. Live demonstrations always get the hairs running on the back, relying on Wi-Fi, et cetera, et cetera. Elliot and myself did a, did a kind of end-to-end negotiation in front of a room full of partners who are, who skeptically should be traditionally the most skeptical bunch of people out there. Legal partners have been doing the job for 30 plus years. As soon as we finished, one of them just said, that's the future. That's how we should be contracting. It's a really small point, but it was just Really nice to see a group of people who traditionally should be quite against change, quite against not even disruption, but new ways of working, who genuinely started their careers before email. To look at something like that and go, that's how we should be working, I think was a real nice bit of personal pride for us that, you know, we'd convince people that you think would be quite difficult, that there is a new way to approach things. So that that's probably a, a small one that we, we really cherish. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Just one final comment from you. Is there one tip that stands out that you can offer the listeners on any subject that you can think of? You know, the tip I'd like to kind of give is about the, the mentality of, of starting your own company and then the day-to-day challenges. I think just have just have confidence in yourself that what you're doing is, is the right thing and don't think it's going to be easy because it's not. And, and as I said before, you've just got to celebrate the small victories. It might just be that someone got back to you today on a sales email. It might be that you secured a small client. But you've got to just keep celebrating those small victories because you never quite know when the big break is going to happen. Just keep persevering. Well, thanks for tuning in to the Tech Startup Collective. I'm Wesley Rashid with David Howarth from Avoca. Thanks very much, everyone.